This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. We're with Blair right now talking about who is filing for bankruptcy. What are the numbers? What's the the data? What's the research? And and I'm thinking in the hopes that people will go, oh, that's me. That's, I mm-hmm. fit into that category. Yep. You are not alone. If you're listening to this and you've got debt, you're definitely not alone. You're, you're actually the, close to the majority. I, I was reading recently, I think it's 46% of people carry a balance, and this is in Canada, carry a balance on their credit card every month. Wow. That's huge warning sign. You're paying 20% interest on a credit card balance. Yeah. Um, hopefully it's going to clear the next month, but if that's a long-term thing, well, then you, you probably need to have a conversation with a professional such as ourselves here. Got it. So what, what kind of numbers of, of people mm-hmm. are we talking about? Yeah. So of the, of the people that come to see trustees, and there's essentially two two legal remedies a trustee can assist with. So one is a personal bankruptcy, and in the last year that's available, so in last year 2016, across Canada, 63,000 people filed for personal bankruptcy. That's a that's a that's a surprisingly large number. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, if you work it out over, on a long-term basis, it's going to be close to 10% of the population over their lifetime is going to go through either a bankruptcy or, or a proposal. In the province of BC, it was just under 5,000 people last year um, actually filed a bankruptcy, but it's it's been a pretty significant decline in bankruptcy rates in recent years in BC. Now, the reassuring part of those numbers is that you're not alone. Mm-hmm. There's lots of folks who are facing huge financial challenges and are taking action as a result of it. Exactly. So, uh, but this is an interesting point, though. You've also said that filing bankruptcies or bankruptcy filings are actually on the down swing. Yeah. In in the last five years, there's been about a 30% decrease decrease in the province of BC uh, in the number of people filing bankruptcies. What, what, how, how is that happening? What's well, the reasoning Yeah, and you might that? think, oh, that's great. People aren't in, in trouble anymore. But no, it, it's quite the opposite. All the debt indicators are moving in, in the wrong direction. You know, debt to income is higher than ever. Income isn't increasing. But what's happening is a lot of people who might have filed a bankruptcy in the past, they're opting to do what's called a consumer proposal okay. now, which is a totally different remedy. And quite often, once people understand what a consumer proposal can do, they no longer need to consider a bankruptcy. So there's been a massive growth uh, in consumer proposals to the effect that in the last year in the province of BC, there was actually more consumer proposals filed than there were personal bankruptcies. Okay, but what's the difference between the two? Because uh, the end result is still the same, right? Yeah. Or is it? No, the end result's exactly the same. You end up with no debt to anybody. You move on with your life with a fresh start, but the means of getting there is completely different. So let's talk about what a consumer proposal is, because that's definitely the, the more unknown of the two options. What a consumer proposal is, it's basically an agreement. You know, any type of a proposal is an offer you're making that has to be accepted by your creditors. So what a proposal does is it's your offering to make a settlement on your debt. By law, when you make a proposal, all the interest stops. So this 20% interest per year that's, you know, running the debts away from you, that stops the day you make a proposal. 
and also by law is typically you're not paying back the full amount of the debt. Quite often, it's about a third of the debt, maybe a quarter of the debt, maybe a half, but it's in full satisfaction of the debt. So when you finish paying off that quarter to half or whatever it is, it's the same as if you paid the debt off in full. They can't come and collect from you ever again in the future. Now, can you take that scenario and relate it to if I didn't do a bankruptcy proposal, but I filed for bankruptcy, mm-hmm. how, how is the, for example, like the interest rate stops, yeah. you stop paying interest at the moment you start the proposal. Yeah. How does that work in bankruptcy? How do, how, what's the impact on interest rates there? Yeah. So, so again, totally di- different remedies. So in yeah. a consumer proposal, you're avoiding bankruptcy. So what you're doing is you're saying to your creditors, if I filed for bankruptcy, um, creditors, you're probably not going to get a whole lot of money back. In Got most it. bankruptcies, there's pennies on the dollars that's paid back. Whereas in a proposal, you're going to offer them, you know, 20, 40, 50 cents on the dollar. Every situation is different, but it's almost always a very significant reduction. So a proposal, it's based on a percentage of the debt repaid. In a bankruptcy, there's no basis on the amount of the debt. You could go bankrupt owing $1,000, $10,000, $10 million. What you're required to pay back isn't based on the debt. You're not making a settlement anymore. Essentially, you've thrown up your hands and said, this is more debt than I'm able to clear. I need to get some relief. What you have to pay back in a bankruptcy is based on your monthly income. Okay. If someone's considered low income, they pay very minimal. If someone's not low income, they have to pay a little bit more. But with a proposal, my lender, it sounds like it's more advantageous to the lender Mm -hmm. for me to have a proposal than it is to file bankruptcy. Absolutely. So the way a proposal is structured is it's supposed to be a win-win. So the win to you, the individual who owes the money, is you don't have to file for bankruptcy. No one goes into bankruptcy lightly. It's a last resort. Obviously, there's credit rating impacts. And if there's a way that you can avoid a bankruptcy, you're interested in hearing about that as an individual. The win to the people that you owe money to is if you choose to file a bankruptcy, that's your legal right. They don't have to approve it. They can't reject it. They have to to basically get repaid or not repaid, whatever the law says. So they're willing to look at alternatives that are going to give them a better return than if you filed for bankruptcy. So the win to your creditors is more money. The win to you is more is no bankruptcy. And the mechanism of, of achieving that is the consumer proposal. Okay. So let's let's talk about credit rating just for mm-hmm. a second there. Uh, how does a proposal impact my credit rating? How does bankruptcy impact my credit rating? Right. Anytime you don't pay back your debts in full, your credit rating is going to take a hit. So if you think of every debt that you have, they're all going to be scaled on a score of R1 being perfect credit to R9 is the debt's been written off. Either you're in bankruptcy or you've skipped the country or something like that. So if you file for bankruptcy, your debts go to R9. So essentially the worst they could be. um, And a bankruptcy is noted for six years after your discharge. Doesn't mean they're not going to advance you any credit. Most of the time, within two to three years after a bankruptcy, if you've done the right things to rebuild your credit, you'll be fine. You'll start to get more offers of credit and you know what to do with. And the, the challenge is going to be using them responsibly so you don't have to come and see us again. Right. Um, but basically, it's going to be on your credit for six years after. Most people rebuild their credit far sooner. Okay. And on a proposal, how's that? What's the impact to my credit rating? On a proposal, it's slightly better. So where a bankruptcy is R9, it's essentially on the worst end of the scale. A proposal is R7. So it's not close okay. to R1, but it's still slightly better than R9. What's hugely important that people realize here is depending on the avenue that you take to try to repay your debts or not. If you do a consumer proposal, you're paying back again a portion of the debt and you're getting an R7. If you go to work with a credit counselor, whether for profit or not for profit, you have to pay back your debts in full with no interest, but it actually hits your credit the exact same. 
Okay. So it's a huge difference. If someone had $40,000 of debt and in a proposal, they're going to pay back $13,000, you know, roughly a third and get an R7 rating. Or if they're seeing a credit counselor, they're going to get an R7 rating, but they're going to pay back the full debt of $40,000. Right. We're a big huge difference in the circumstances. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's move on. Uh, Common causes of insolvency. Right. For the most part, it's essentially everything was going fine and then something happened, meaning some shock to the system. So all very logical things, you know, a job loss, um, a divorce, you know, suddenly having to reestablish two households where there was one before and quite often before there was a divorce, there was Quite often a period of non-communication between the spouses and maybe the finances got out of control. So that's a very big one for us. Um, illness is huge. So although we have socialized medis- medicine here and it's great you don't have to pay to see the doctor, people don't replace your income for, for, you know, for many jobs. You don't have disability benefits. Prescription drugs can be very expensive. So definitely health concerns are huge. Um, the number one thing that people self-identify when they come in the door is just that they overextended themselves on credit. Hmm. They just got too much credit off and too early in life. They didn't realize things were getting out of hand until it was too late. And then they started to look at their statements and realize they're just not going to get this thing paid off and they need to get some help. Right. And we talked about, uh, we've talked about in the past about the credit card statement and how they've been forced, the credit card companies to say, it's going to take you this long to pay it off. Mm-hmm. which is a, a, a bone, you know, sort of good news and bad news. Yeah, it's good news that it's there in black and white, but it's bad that, yeah, the debts are structured that advantageously for the banks, meaning 20% interest on their money. You know, try depositing some money in a savings account and see if you get more than 1% interest. Exactly. So not a fair fight, but it is where we are. So uh, let's talk about how folks see themselves moving towards insolvency. Uh, the waiting time between boy, I'm in a serious situation here to I'm actually going to do something about it. Yeah, and that that can be as much as two years where people, you know, essentially, you know, hide from the problem, stop opening the mail or, or things things like that. Um, but yeah, definitely people can kind of ignore the situation. Um, sometimes there are some catalysts that bring people through the door and quite often collection calls are a big one. Mm. So it's when the person is suddenly real and coming over the phone and usually not in a very nice way, um, right. you know, telling you you need to deal with this type of an issue. Um, you know, when you receive the 10th one of those in a single day and the day before that you had 15 and so on and so forth that can just become consuming because you don't have anything good to say to the person on the line. Typically, they want to be paid and you don't have the money to pay them. And then the emotional impact that that that, that, that carries too. Mm-hmm. The stress, the shame, the guilt, the, all that other stuff uh, can cause all kinds of issues. Yeah, and then people start, you know, doing things that are, aren't helpful to themselves. They start, you know, moving money from one card to another just to make it for another month. Right. You know, sometimes they start getting payday loans, and with payday loans, I've never seen just one. Usually it's five or it's 10 or it's more of them because the interest rate is so high, usually to pay back that first payday loan, you have to take a second one. Right. So it just becomes this vicious cycle. Not a good not a good way to do it. Um, what, and what are some of the warning signs that if you're, you know, looking at your situation and think, you know, am I moving towards a debt that I can't possibly get a handle of? What are some of the signs that you've seen with, with folks coming in your door? You know, the best sign is if someone sits down and writes out all of their debts, writes out the interest rate, and then figures out 
if they've got a plan to get themselves to be debt-free in a reasonable amount of time, reasonable meaning within a couple of years. If you sit down, you look at your debts, you realize all you can do is the minimum payments, and you know two years from now, you're going to be owing the same amount of money. That's a very healthy analysis to say, hey, what I'm doing right now is not going to get me out of debt. Let's try to change the game. Let's try to do something different. Visit a licensed insolvency trustee and investigate whether a personal bankruptcy or a consumer proposal can restructure things for you. If any of this information resonates with you and you think, yeah, I need to do something now, sooner rather than later, it's very easy to take action. Uh, Sands-trustee.com is the website. Talk to folks like Blair. They've got offices all over uh, the lower mainland, as well as two in the interior and two on Vancouver Island. Uh, Get a financial fresh start. The number, the 1-800 number, 1-800-661-3030. You can book an appointment for a free consultation and get started on this and to find an office near you. We'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Spallen with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. For information on any of the services we talk about on the show, go to sands-trustee.com or call 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation to find an office near you. Oh, with us right now, Stephanie Duffy, uh, her website, stephanieduffy.com. She's a life coach, relationship strategist. She lives in the Fraser Valley. She specializes as a life, cho- uh, life coach, helping folks identify and acknowledge the limiting beliefs that keep us from living our full potential. Wow. That's quite, that's quite a description, Steph. <laughs> it is. It is. It's a good one, though. It's a good one. Um, and we're talking, this show's all about money and debt, and, and I know that that's an area that you uh, also help people with, uh, look at the tough events that create the debt or financial challenges. Uh, let's talk about some of those things. What are the sort of, what are the number one things that, that you find with, uh, with the people that you end up talking to? Well, unfortunately, what I'm really noticing um, that's quickly arising um, that's affecting financial strain is unexpected disease or illness. Um, mm. And sometimes I, I wonder what's going on with society because all these diseases and illnesses are suddenly coming up. And of course, people aren't ready for it, right? We don't expect to suddenly have a disease or illness. And so we don't plan for it. Um, and other life events, the end of a relationship that's, you know, quite common unexpected layoffs or loss of a job, uh, sudden market change. So there can be a, um, a loss of sales for those who are suddenly self-employed, um, mental health issues, addictions, personal issues. Really, it, it just seems to cover just life in general. The whole gamut of things. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, what what jumps out out to me, Stephanie, as well is you know some of some of those those things. You know, obviously they're they're terrible. You would you wouldn't wish them, but you know if you were financially um, solvent at the time and you had an emergency fund, you know, maybe to get you through to six months or, or nine months or something like that, which, you know, generally people recommend, you know, you might be able to get it through. But what I see with, with my client base and just in, in general is people find it so tough to save just any money, let alone three, six or nine months of expenses to get through these. So when a big life event happens, it can be, you know, rather catastrophic from a financial point of view sometimes. 
Oh, exactly. And here's where, you know, times have changed. We're in a generation where, I mean, and maybe this isn't my limiting belief, but people, you know, are paycheck to paycheck. And it's both partners working to earn an income, keeping their head above water, right? There's no real um, space for financial strain. It's just the times that we're in. And, and Stephanie, I was wondering, those financial strains, can they create a, a sabotage cycle for your, your future successes? Oh, definitely. Um, you know, financial strain, it can easily traumatize and change a person's view of themselves and their world. You know, so an example is a person going through financial strain. Um, they may now view themselves as being a failure, not good enough to be successful and whatever else you know, their brain decides to create. And so what happens is these beliefs, um, they stay in our subconscious mind and they run our show without us being aware of it. So, you know, an example would be, um, say someone who's been self-employed has a financial strain in in one way or another, decides that they're going to go back um, into self-employment. Their business is starting to become successful, and then unconsciously they sabotage it because they have this belief that they're a failure and not deserving of success. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally makes sense. My question is now, how do you help somebody sort of enter into that discussion and to see those kinds of things? How do you do that? Um. The beautiful thing is we look at our behaviors, right? And um, to me, behaviors tell me or or give me some lead as to what is really going on, what beliefs they have. So if a person, you know, wants to, say, become self-employed and and reach a certain um, dollar amount, but they're unable to, then I'll just ask them questions. You know, do they feel deserving enough? Do they feel worthy? What would it look like if they were earning X number of dollars? And, you know, quite often um, I'll get people to look at what is their money ceiling? You know, for example, okay, can you picture yourself making $25,000? And, you know, if they say yes, I usually bump it up by $25,000 increments. You know, can you see yourself earning $100,000 in a year? And it's interesting, you know, and this includes myself as well. It's like people suddenly, you know, kind of freeze. And it's like, oh, we have a money ceiling. So what's that about? It's like, so you can make X number of dollars, but it's not okay to make X, right? So what's that about? Or even the... Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, or even believe that you could make that amount of money. Well, that's right. So that's where it's like, okay, so what's that about? It's okay for you to make... 80, but not 100. So, you know, what does a person who makes 100,000 look like? You know, what what is different from them than the one who makes 80,000? Yeah, it, it seems to, to me, um, Stephanie, you're basically just expanding, you know, the potential that that person can see within themselves. You know, they've, they've limited themselves and said, this is what I can do. And you're showing them, hey, there's, there's a much bigger world out there that you, you can be, you know, successful within. Um, I see just a huge parallel when people come in to see us and they're, you know, been dealing with a debt maybe for two years and every day their interactions have been negative. You know, they've had a collection mm-hmm. person call them, you know, 10 times in a day, speak down to them, be condescending, threaten them mm-hmm. with legal action. You know, after a while, you're just in such a 
stress mode that as you were describing here, the sabotage cycle, I was like, I, I see that, you know, day to day. And so mm-hmm. much of, of our job as trustees and, you know, just as, as people here is trying to help rebuild um, that person's self-confidence so that when they're finished the bankruptcy or a proposal, they're going to go out and achieve and be the productive member of society. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And, you know, just to add on that, um, I've had two real good friends who uh, have gone into bankruptcy and I'm amazed to listen to their stories because that was their greatest gift. One who was Mm self-employed and it just became such a struggle and this changed his way because now he's doing something different and just the, the tools they learned and realizing that they didn't have to keep, you know, beating their head against the wall for so long that there are, you know, are other avenues. And that, um, you know, bankruptcy doesn't have the shame that would have been attached to, you know, years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know you, you're just, you're echoing exactly our sentiments here. And, you know, what I try to, to help people understand is, you know, bankruptcy is your rebirth. It's your chance yeah. to, to start again. And isn't that a wonderful opportunity? You know, when someone's in my office and we, we look at all the negative ways debt is impacting their life and we say, okay, picture your life without that debt. You know, that's mm-hmm. transformational. And, mm-hmm. you know, people can get there. Mm-hmm. And and what a beautiful reframe. It's look at the positives rather than the negatives, mm-hmm. you know, and possibilities. At, have you got a couple of key things that you, uh, questions, if someone's listening to this right now and they're, they're, they're sort of hearing themselves be described, um, is there a, are there a couple of things that you would suggest that someone could questions that they could ask themselves to know, yeah, this is what this is what's happening for me. This is what's going on for me. And boy, I'd like to get out of it. Have you got some ideas around that? Well, I always ask people to reflect on their own behavior because our outside world reflects our inside world. So whatever shows up for me and how my behaviors are is my beliefs running that show. So, you know, Speaking about financial aspects, um, that's going to reflect on how I'm feeling about myself for for most part. And I mean, I'm I'm not talking about, um, you know, the financial strain that comes to us from an illness because that's that's something different. Yeah. Um, You know, but I'm talking about like, you know, because of gambling, credit card debt, like just whatever personal issues, maybe we'll call it. Um, you know, do we feel successful or worthy of, you know, having money? What does money mean to us? You know, and here's where when we go back to our childhood, you know, I always ask people, what did your parents say to you or maybe not say to you about money? How was money treated in your household? You know, what, what were the beliefs around people who had money? Got it. And and so really look at that because it's our childhood beliefs that were put upon us that we took to, to own ourselves that are still running our lives. And sometimes, you know, we don't even know what they are. And so it's just reacquainting yourself with what do you believe about money, you know, ab- about being successful? You know, what is successful? 
for more information, if you're if you're feeling like this conversation is resonating with you, Stephanie Duffy Stephanie Duffy's website is www.stephanieduffy.com. She's a life coach. She specializes to help folks figure out their limiting beliefs. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, who are experts in helping you get out of debt. We'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. For information on any of the services we talk about on the show, go to sands-trustee.com or call 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation and to find an office near you. We've got Christine Conway online right now. She's a partner at Braun Financial Services, holds designations both as a certified financial planner and a certified health insurance specialist. Now, she practices in the Lower Mainland, super knowledgeable in a whole bunch of areas that will affect you regardless of where you're living. Uh, Christine specializes in debt and retirement and is the author of The Debt-Free Lifestyle, A Strategy for the Average Canadian. Christine, thanks so much for being here. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, Christine, why is it important to be debt-free or financially comfortable before retirement? Debt freedom before retirement is all about opportunity. Um, Your money can only go into one place at a time. So when we're able to reduce or eliminate debt early on, it frees up the resources for the things that people think about when they think retirement, and that's the travel and the vacation and the lifestyle that they've been wanting to enjoy. Um, Another point that's really important is when people go into retirement with the debt, and I put mortgages in that category as well, what they often don't realize is that they'll have to save more money when they're preparing for retirement in order to service that debt. So if they've taken care of their debt before they've retired, they can actually, depending on the circumstances, save a little bit less and still have some money left over for the fun stuff. Now, one of the interesting things about Christine is that back in 2008, she moved from Winnipeg to the Lower Mainland. And and not only is that a, a, is that a big physical move, but it's also a big sort of economic move, Christine. You've gone from, from Winnipeg, uh, where prices are one thing, and then you come to the Lower Mainland. It's a bit of a different, uh, different kettle of fish. How did you, how did you manage that uh, with you and your family? How did you, how did you come to terms with, the, with that big change? Absolutely. Well, once we got over the initial shock, because it was shocking, um, I began to realize, so during my job as a financial planner, uh, people living here were in the exact same situation. People were struggling to kind of get over the hurdle of how do I get into a house that I can not only comfortably afford, but also one that allows me to save for the future. So a lot of the book, The Debt-Free Lifestyle, is about just that. It's We're taking on too much debt, and when interest rates start to go up, that's really going to affect how much we have to pay, which would affect then how much we have left to spend on other things. So for us, it came down to something that I came up with that I've called the simple budget system. takes 15 minutes to do a couple times a week, um, sorry, once every two weeks when you get paid, and essentially it's 
a simplified way of managing money. It helped us put a lot of money, um, almost $200,000 towards our debt in seven years. And that was mm. when we were earning pretty average salaries. Wow, that, that sounds pretty powerful. It is, yeah. And yeah. it's a lot of it is about when you look at debt, mortgages are usually taken right out of the equation. People mm-hmm. think, I have a mortgage, I'm going to have it forever. But the very way the mortgage is structured, it's called an amortized loan. And if you understand how principal and interest are blended on these loans, you can use that to your advantage in a huge way. Now, so th- that's one of the things I love talking to people about because they don't realize how much money they really have available to put to other things. Now, can you explain a little bit, uh, sort of real layman's terms for us, Christine, on, on how that works? Absolutely. So when you start a mortgage, so or when you refinance, typically you have 25 years and you've said, okay, I'm going to pay for this thing. I'm giving myself 25 years to do it. And the actual payment that you make for the first period of the mortgage, so early on, till roughly about halfway through, most of your payment is interest. And very, very little is actually paying down the debt. So very It's rather depressing when you look at your mortgage statement, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you see it. You yeah. actually see it when you're reading your statements. I paid so much to interest, yep. and I paid just a little bit to principal. So what we try and do for clients is we come up with how much money do we have left available that we can apply to just the principal. And when you do that early on in the mortgage, you can substantially reduce your total interest costs, which reduces the total cost of your mortgage. Because when people think about their home, they think about the sticker price. So say I want to buy a $500,000 home. Uh, I'm thinking, hey, I'm paying $500,000. But over the period of 25 years, depending on where interest rates are, I can pay considerably more. Um, When the average interest rate is about 6%, you'll actually pay for that house twice, and the half will be going to interest. So there's a significant amount of things that people can do once they start to understand how these, these products are structured. And, and Christine, you were mentioning about interest rates a little bit, bit earlier, and I, I find it interesting with when I sit down with, with my clients and we actually start to do some sensitivity analysis. You know, so many folks that I see, they're, they're very extended on their mortgage. It's a variable rate mortgage. And, you know, we talk about, okay, if it's a 1% raise in interest rates, you know, that doesn't sound like much, but that could be a 50% increase in, in someone's mortgage payment or a 33% increase. You know, if we're talking 2 or 3% mortgage rates, any small increase can, can be big. So how do you encourage your, your clients to, to try to plan for that? Do they sit down and you know try to forecast different scenarios and they're still okay? You know, I love that you do that for your clients because it's something that we do too. Um, and I think it's so important because a dollar that's out of their pocket is a dollar that's not going to be going back into the economy, right? It's a dollar less that they can spend or save for something else. Um, but what we do is, um, well, in the book, I took what we saw from the end of 2009. So when interest rates dropped off, Uh, they've been kind of slowly and steadily declining from 2009 to now. So I had taken a scenario which reverses the trend. So it's based on historical interest rates, normal data, just reversed. So if we had a slow and steady increase of interest rates, and typically less than 1% every five years, because that's kind of how we saw these things go down. Um, But it's still, even, even in a very slowly rising interest rate scenario, payments can go up substantially. And that's what you had just 
just touched on. People seem to think that if they're paying down their mortgage regularly, that um, their payments are just always going to go down. And if you look at interest rate history, we've just seen declines for decades now. So really, a rising interest rate retirement is something that people are honestly, they're just not ready for, and they're not aware of what the impact will be on their actual day-to-day spending. Yeah, and I think it, it could be significant um, for oh, people. Incredibly, see, and, yeah. and I'd like to stress not large increases. If yep. we just have very, very small incremental increases, it all goes back down to the size of your debt. So if I have a million dollar mortgage and it's a 1% rate increase, that can, it's a multiplier effect. Exactly. Right? So the size of debt that you carry really makes a difference. And that's why um, I'm, in, I'm in the camp that favors taking care of the problem early on, right away. Don't wait until interest rates rise to be stuck. Proactively deal with it now because it'll cost you more over the long term if you wait. And Christine, just switching gears a little bit, just to, to more more general, for the average person who's sitting there considering their, their finances, what type of goal setting should the average person kind of focus on? For sure. Um, if we're talking about debt, I think one of the most important things to be aware of is understanding how long it's going to take you to pay off your debt and what the total cost will be. Um, and that's a little bit what we talked about. It relates to mortgages, but also to every other type of consumer debt. Um, here's here's a tip. A lot of consumer debt, if you think of credit cards, lines of credit, they're all open-ended. So you don't ever see an end date on your statement. You have a payment date, but you don't have a date that says, okay, this is when this debt is going to be done. So we have to create that for ourselves so that we can then become debt-free. Otherwise, you kind of get on that hamster wheel, right? And you right. just go through the cycle over and over again. And these things will continue on for as long as you let them. So, so you're I saying if you've got a credit card debt and you don't have an end date for when that's going to be paid off, that's a goal you should be setting, right? I see, Yes. Yeah. I think that when people go through their individual goal-setting processes, if debt is one of their priorities, um, determining how long it'll take to pay down those debts, how much it'll cost them to do so, what the total cost is, including interest, and then with all that data, setting an end date so that they can make a commitment to themselves to say, okay, at this point in time, I'm going to be done with this debt, and then it's, it's off the table, and now I've got money to spend on something else. Now, I know for myself, uh, I would need some assistance to be able to do that. And I think that's where you would come in, right, Christine? Like a financial planner, you'd be able to assist me to figure out how to do that and how to do that properly. Yeah, I think that's where the industry comes in. So if you're looking for a financial planner, uh, things that you'd want to look for would be if they're a certified financial planning professional first. Uh, anyone in Canada right now could call themselves a financial planner. So you could if you'd like. You could oh, well. <laughs> a little sign on your door and that's say, scary. I'm a financial planner. <laughs> it is. So yes. that's why when you're doing your diligence, you really want to check their qualifications. Um, so the Financial Planner Standards Council is what provides the certified financial planner designation. Anyone with those three letters after their name, it means not only have we gone through rigorous training, uh, we're required to do continuing education, and we also, there's a work experience requirement in there as well. So you can't just start practicing right away. You need to actually be actively involved in doing this. Um, I would also encourage people to check experience and specialization. 
because financial planning is such a big category. Um, so I specialize in debt and retirement, which means this is what I do most of the time. Um, so I help people get retired. I help people pay off their debt, uh, those kinds of things. But someone else with the same designation as I have maybe focused on something completely different. So when you're meeting with someone for the first time and you're kind of preparing your list of questions, just make sure that you check what they're good at and what they do regularly enough to be up to date on. That's great information, Christine. Uh, another good place as we wrap up right now is uh, Christine's website. It's www.debtfreelifestyle.ca. Christine's a partner at, Fra- at uh, Braun Financial Services and holds designations as, yes, one of those certified financial planners and certified health insurance specialist. And of course, really enjoys talking to people about debt and retirement. And of course, her book, The Debt-Free Lifestyle, A Strategy for the Average Canadian, is also available. Christine, thanks so much for joining us. Not a problem. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, who are experts in helping you get out of debt. We'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. Now, we're talking about sort of frequently asked questions, and one of them that that seems to come up for you a lot at Sands & Associates, Blair, is talking about secured debts. Let's let's talk about that, what it is, what's the difference, and and how it works. Certainly. So, yeah, this is something that, um, you know, it's a pretty core uh, basic understanding about debt, but still um, it's important that, that we have it out there. So what a secured debt is, is secured means that there's some security there that if you don't pay the debt, they're going to take something from you. So, so that would be my car. Exactly. House. Your house. It could be, you know, a piece of equipment if you're in a business. Um, it could be, you know, a farm implement. Essentially anything that you've given security over. So even what some people do is they go to, you know, City Financial, for example, and they get a loan and they get they give security over all of their household goods. Mm. That would mean if they don't pay that loan, well, this lender could potentially come and take their household goods. So you can give security over any type of an asset, but the most common ones are over your mortgage, your house, and your car, your car loan. Okay. So it sounds like a good thing from a from a, a, a lender's point of view. Exactly. But yeah. do I have to do that if I'm wanting if I'm needing the money, if I'm needing the loan? Like is For the most part, yes. Okay. So for the most part, if you want to get someone to loan you money, you know, to buy a house or, or to buy a car, they're not gonna do that unless you give them some, you know, again, security or an agreement that if you don't pay, they've got some recourse. They can go and get the car sold or get the the house sold out out from under you here. And we'll talk about those remedies, but that's totally different than an unsecured debt. An unsecured debt is something like a MasterCard debt, Visa, Amex, income tax, student loans. That's something if you don't pay, you know, it's not pleasurable. They're going to call you. They're going to harass you. They're going to do a bunch of things, but there's nothing they can really take from you without taking action against you first, going to court, trying to seize things. If it's a secure debt, if you don't pay, they've got the right to come and seize the asset. Now, I did just have a thought when you were talking about the secured, if you're going after a secured debt uh, for something, you're wanting to buy something, a house or a car, and the lender doesn't offer you that, Mm -hmm. then 
I would then think, okay, I need to investigate the lender a little bit because if they're just going to give me this money and there's some, you know, there's no backing to them, then (laughs) what at the end of the day are they actually, you know, going to take if I don't pay up? Oh yeah. That sounds like a scam six ways to Sunday. And I've I've seen that in in the past where, you know, people will, you know, say, oh, this sweetheart financing deal and you can't believe, oh yeah, they're not going to take security or whatever. But what it is at the end of the day is they're going to charge you a bunch of application fees. They're going to charge you, oh, a credit report fee and this fee and that fee. So at the end of the day, you might've paid them hundreds or even thousands of dollars. And at at the end of the day, nobody on God's green earth is going to advance you money against your house without taking security. Right. So the money's not going to be there at the end of the day with no security interest, but you might have paid a bunch of money thinking that it's going to come through in the end. So it's basically buyer beware. For the most part, if you're buying an asset and you don't have the money up front, so let's be clear, if you're going to buy a car for cash or a house for cash, you're not going to be giving security to anybody on those because you don't owe money. But if you have to borrow the money for the asset, then security is what's going to be taken out. Okay, so something to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. So next question, can a secured debt be dealt with under what we talk a lot about on this show, the consumer proposal, or in the case if you're entering personal bankruptcy? How does that work? Yeah, so absolutely yes is the answer. Um, but let's let's back up a, a second first sure. and say, you know, what happens just if you don't pay a secured okay, debt? Okay, fair I enough. Think that's interesting too, because in some cases, you know, if you don't pay the secured debt, they're going to come and take the security, and that might be the end of it. You actually don't need a bankruptcy or, or a proposal. Right. But let's talk through an example of, of a car loan. Because okay. um, I was quite surprised when I moved to BC. There's some very specific provincial legislation that um, essentially protect consumers if you financed a car. Oh, so yeah. So let, let's consider. You know, we, we financed a car, and it's a, about a year later, and we realized that you know what, we, we can't make the payments on this car. Something's happened. We lost a job, or someone got sick. Um, and the challenge is, you know, the car is now a year or two old. We know the car depreciated thirty percent when we drove it off the lot. Probably another thirty percent the next year after. So So by definition, a car loan, you're essentially underwater for almost the whole time. Got it. And what I mean by underwater is if you sell the asset, it's not going to be enough to pay off the debt. Yeah, it's never going to be the amount of money that you paid for it. That's right. Ever with a car, because right? It, it maybe towards the end, maybe, you know, a month 82 out of 84, you could sell, you know, you could sell yeah. the car and, and pay off the debt there. I'm not sure. But for the most part, you're going to be considered what's called underwater. Okay. So what happens if, if you can't make the payments? Well, so first off, they're going to call you and they're going to say, okay, you know, maybe we didn't get your payment this month. And you'll say to them, well, actually, I did that on purpose. I'm not able to make these payments. What's going to happen then is essentially your lenders have an option of either seizing the vehicle from you or suing you for the difference. Okay. And they're two different remedies. Now, if they seize the vehicle from you, this is actually the best possible thing that could happen. Really? You're surprised, right? I am. Because what that means, and BC is one of the only provinces like this, if we were sitting in Ontario and we've got a car we owe $40,000 on and it's seized and it's sold for $20,000, in Ontario, you're getting a bill for $20,000. You got to pay that difference. Okay. In BC, you're done. You're not getting a bill for that difference. It's seize or sue. If they decide to seize the vehicle from you, now obviously get your own legal advice or some, you know, particularities about this, but if they decide to seize the vehicle from you, they're not able to come back to you for the shortfall. If that vehicle sells at a shortfall for auction, you're fine. The shortfall is not pinned on you. That's very important for consumers to know. If they're underwater on a vehicle loan, the worst thing they can typically do is sell it off, take the loss, and then try to pay off the difference. They're better in having it seized by the creditor. Okay, that you, you've lost money. You've lost that. You've lost the money that you've put into the car. Mm-hmm. But like you said, that's it. 
Yeah, you don't have to lose any more. And I see people in my office, you know, sometimes they owe $60,000 on a very basic Kia car. And I can see what's happened is every time they've negotiated negative equity, they've rolled in what they were already underwater on one loan into another loan into another. And as soon as I explain to them how Seize or Sue works, usually the answer there is stop making the payments, give the car back to the lender, um, and then, you know, get your own financing for another vehicle. Okay. Now, in full disclosure, there is the option. The lender could say, you know what, we're not going to seize this car. We're actually going to sue you for full payment on the loan. Got it. They have the right to do that. And depending on, you know, your profile, they may choose to do so. I've never in 10 years of practice seen them not seize the car. Okay. So in almost every case that I've seen, they seize the car, but there is still a little bit of risk and that's why you'd want to get some some legal help there. Okay. So mm-hmm. now can we go to the question, Certainly. how do those <laughs> secured debts be, uh, how do they g- get dealt with under the uh, consumer proposal or personal bankruptcy? Right. And now I'm, I'm happy we, we got to here because now this let's assume that we actually want to keep the car. We want to keep the car or we want to keep our house. And those are huge fears people have when they walk into our office and they're considering a bankruptcy or a proposal, usually a question number two is, am I going to lose my house? And question number three is, am I going to lose my car? Right. Right. What happens when you go through a bankruptcy or a proposal is in most cases, those assets are left untouched. They're actually intact at the end of the day. So if you've got a vehicle loan, what we look at, if you file for bankruptcy or do a consumer proposal, we look at, do you have equity in that vehicle loan? Is there some value there? If you were to sell the car that you would get something back? We've just talked about in almost every case, there's negative equity in a vehicle loan. So what a bankruptcy or a proposal does is it gives you the option. If you decide, okay, you know what? I don't want to be in this, in this financing anymore. At the same time, you're doing a bankruptcy or a proposal. You could get rid of the car, get a new car, and then basically start to move forward, having everything restructured. So it's your option, but it's not a requirement. You could decide that you're going to keep that exact car. Just keep making the payments all the way through. Nothing has to be disrupted strictly because you filed a bankruptcy or a proposal. Because people tend to keep cars because they need them. They've got to get, they don't want to lose that job. They've got to drive from A to B and the car is the thing that's going to get them there. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, even if you had a car that there was no loan against and you filed a bankruptcy, you're still allowed to keep it as long as it's a reasonably valued car. You can't keep a Ferrari or a Lamborghini, but if it's, you know, a reasonably valued car that you need to get to work, um, the trustee would have no issue with you retaining that. Or you've got a family and they need to get wherever they need to get to as well. Yeah. Okay, let's continue on then. Mm-hmm. So next question, is it, and look at our time, mm-hmm. is it possible to carry on with these arrangements under the consumer proposal or per- personal bankruptcy? Yeah, let's talk about a mortgage example, sure. right? Because again, if people are very worried about their car, you can imagine how, to, how you know, doubly, triply worried they would be about their mortgage. You know, yeah. it's clearly it's where the family lives and, and so on and so forth. And, and, you know, quite often, if you had to sell a house now in the lower mainland, you know, you might be happy with the price, but where are you going to buy and where, where exactly. are you going to go? So with a mortgage, it's very very similar to a bankruptcy or or, or very similar to a car loan. We have to look at what's the equity. If someone is sitting there with a million dollars of equity in their house, yeah, they can't go into bankruptcy and keep a million dollars of equity in the house unless all of that goes to pay their debt. For the most part, people are usually very mortgaged up almost to what the house is worth. They just continue to make the mortgage payments each month while they're in bankruptcy or in a proposal. Quite often, they're in a much better position to make those mortgage payments because we're able to restructure all of the other debts, all the unsecured debts we can restructure and bring down so they can actually afford to make the secured debts, to make the mortgage payment, to make the car loan payment each day. 
So if any of this information resonates with you and, and you think, yeah, this is the help that I need, sands-trustee.com is the website to talk to Blair and his staff, or you can call 1-800-661-3030 to book a free consultation. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.